You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. And we are all connected. Take it away, Vivian. Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library and our Writers Live series. We are so excited to have Dr. Lawrence Brown here this evening to discuss his magnificent work. But before we get into uh, Dr. Brown's lecture, I would like to mention two of the departments that he used in crafting his work, and they were the African-American department and the Maryland department. And just to kind of give you a little overview of the resources that these two departments have, uh, in the African-American department, we have so many valuable resources when people are doing research. So just to name a few, the microfilm collection, we have a vertical file collection, and we have a digital, digital, digital collection, which includes federal programs, slave documents, and photographs. The Maryland Department, another department, has over 55,000 volumes, and their topics also include resources on genealogical research, local history, annual reports, legal assistance, Maryland yearbooks, and they have Maryland state documents. So if you get an opportunity, please look at the, our Pratt webpage for some of these departments that can help you with your research too. So thank you very much. And I'm going to turn it over to Danielle. Thank you so much, Vivian. Uh, and good evening, everyone. I'm Danielle Terrain, uh, Director of OSI Baltimore. Uh, first, I just want to start by thanking the Pratt Library and AARP for co-sponsoring this event, along with the OSI's uh, Fellows Advisory Board. Uh, for those who, of you who may not uh, be familiar with OSI, we're actually the only U.S. field office of the Open Society Foundations, and the Open Society Foundations is actually an international organization that works to build vibrant and inclusive democracies whose governments are accountable to their citizens. Here in Baltimore, our mission is to disrupt the longstanding legacy of structural racism by supporting powerful social change movements led by centering the needs of, the interests of, uh, and the voices of historically marginalized communities and communities of color uh, in the city. Since our founding in 1998, uh, one of OSI's core initiatives has been our community fellowships. Uh, every year, OSI selects and supports a, a cohort of dynamic activists and social entrepreneurs who are all interested in implementing projects that address problems in underserved community, uh, communities in Baltimore City. There are now more than 220 fellows in uh, the Community Fellows Network, which is really incredible. In fact, um, our featured uh, author tonight, Dr. Lawrence Brown, um, actually became an OSI Community Fellow in 2012 to support his work founding uh, what was called You're the Quarterback, uh, Game Plan for Life which aim to strengthen the families of men with children by focusing on barriers to employment, increasing health insurance coverage, and actually supporting um, and providing support services to up to 150 men. 
Uh, Dr. Brown has actually been an ongoing member of OSI, um, a partner of OSI ever since. And in 2017, uh, he was actually one of the founding members of the Fellows Advisory Board, which uh, Patrice Hutton will talk a, a bit more about in a few minutes. Um, he's also served as a key consultant on a, a number of uh, uh, key initiatives, uh, such as the Blueprint for Baltimore uh, and several others. In our 2018 20th anniversary program, we were really proud to present Dr. Brown with our first ever Bold Thinker Award for his development of the White L Black Butterfly Construct that undergirds the powerful book that we're actually gonna talk about tonight. OSI shares Dr. Dr. Brown's belief that Baltimore's history of economic apartheid must be counteracted with proactive community-based investment and several of our current initiatives at OSI, including the Be More Invested project, um, aim to do exactly that. We also take to heart Dr. Brown's insistence that philanthropic institutions um, had a powerful role to play uh, in creating apartheid systems. And uh, we understand that we have an obligation as philanthropic actors to support the work necessary to dismantle them. So we really thank uh, Dr. Brown for his ongoing partnership in this work. So now I'll turn it over to Patrice Hutton, uh, Hutton, who was also in the 2012 cohort of the uh, OSI Community Fellows and also founded Writers in Baltimore Schools, uh, which is a powerful program that is still active today. Like Dr. Brown, she was a co-founding member of uh, OSI's Fellows Advisory Board, and she'll talk a bit about that and introduce tonight's speakers. Um, Patrice? Thank you so much, Danielle. Um, on behalf of the Open Society Institute Baltimore Community Fellows Advisory Board, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's Writers Live event. My name is Patrice Hutton, and I'm the Executive Director of Writers in Baltimore Schools and a 2008 OSI Baltimore Community Fellow. For years, I've kept one of Dr. Lawrence Brown's tweets pinned to the top of my Twitter profile. It reads, if you want to understand the legacy of Freddie Gray, look at how many people didn't know each other before April 27th, 2015, but know so now. I got acquainted with Dr. Brown through the Community Fellows Network, but really I met Dr. Brown through Freddie Gray, a man I never met. After the police killing of Freddie Gray and subsequent uprising, Writers in Baltimore Schools hosted a write-in for Freddie Gray, where young writers and community members gathered to reflect and write on racism, police brutality, and Freddie Gray. Dr. Brown showed up to support the young writers, where he provided them with a history of the politics that led to the conditions of Freddie Gray's life and death. Soon after, Dr. Brown and I were recruited as founding members of OSI Baltimore's Fellows Advisory Board, where I became the deputy to his Thought Leadership Committee, which co-hosts tonight's event, and has subsequently turned into the Equity Committee. Writers in Baltimore Schools has realized that in order to do better by the present, we must anchor our work in the history of our city. For that reason, we've incorporated a session by Dr. Brown into the Teaching of Writing in Baltimore Schools class we co-facilitate with the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. 
We originally brought Dr. Brown in to provide students with a history of segregation in Baltimore City, but we now realize we've incorporated Dr. Brown for a secondary reason. He offers the epitome of engaging pedagogy, and we know that our creative writing instructors will grow in their teaching for having learned from Dr. Brown's methods. Lawrence T. Brown is the founder and director of the Black Butterfly Project, a racial equity education and consulting firm. From 2013 to 2019, he served as an assistant and associate professor at Morgan State University in the School of Community Health and Policy, where he launched the Be More Lead Free Initiative. In 2020, he directed the US COVID-19 Atlas Work and Response for the County Health Rankings and Roadmaps Program in partnership with the University of Chicago Center for Spatial Data Science. Tonight, Dr. Brown is in conversation with Dr. Jean Axius, a passionate champion and catalyst for changing how the world sees and values aging. He is an internationally recognized thought leader on aging, longevity, equity, health systems, transformation, and modernizing the delivery and financing of long-term care. As Senior Vice President of Global Thought Leadership at AARP, he leads a team in positioning AARP as a global thought leader by identifying emerging trends around the world, cultivating and elevating new ideas, forging global strategic alliances that become the foundation for collaboration and sparking bold solutions to change systems and improve the lives of the global population as it ages. As Dr. Brown dedicates so many of his presentations to the memory of Betty Robinson, a 2003 OSI Community Fellow, I dedicate this introduction to her. Betty's work lives on every day through Dr. Brown. Thank you. All right, well, thank you so much, Patrice. Thank you, OSI. Thank you, uh, Enoch Pratt. I'm just really thrilled to be here today. Thank you all for being here. It is a real honor and a pleasure to present uh, and be in conversation with Dr. Axius uh, as soon as I finish the presentation. And uh, I, you know, I do dedicate this talk to our dearly beloved uh, Betty Garman Robinson, who we lost uh, last year, and she was a tremendous worker with SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, putting her life on the line. She was down, uh, took a freedom ride, and did work in the Deep South in 1964 and worked to help end the original Jim Crow. And so I want to lift this up in her memory. Thank you, Danielle, for that stirring introduction. I really appreciate that. And I'm definitely a proud 2012 fellow and uh, it's exciting to just be in conversation and thought partnership with uh, such an organization that has really been such a great support to me and all of my work. So let me jump in, let me jump in. I wanna to talk to you all just a few minutes about the enduring legacy of Baltimore apartheid. Uh, just so we can set the stage for today's conversation. So let me start right here with these three gentlemen, th 
three mayors of Baltimore, the godfathers of Baltimore apartheid. Mayor John Barry Mahool, Mayor James H. Preston, and then Mayor Howard Jackson. These are the three godfathers of Baltimore apartheid right here. So, Mayor, as you can see right here, Mayor John Barry Mahool, he was mayor uh, through the very beginning of 19... Oh, well, from 1907 through the very beginning of 1911. And so he was mayor when Baltimore passed and he signed the first residential racial zoning law in American history. Uh, was passed right in Baltimore City on December 19th, 1910. Uh, shortly thereafter, Mayor James H. Preston, he became the mayor. And while he was mayor, uh, the Roland Park Company and uh, the general manager, Edward Bowden, they pioneered racially restrictive covenants, uh, community-wide racially restrictive covenants, and that was online by 1912. So let me step up back just a second because I want to show you this article in the New York Times magazine. So this is in the middle, Mayor John Barry Mahul. So this is this is Christmas Day, 1910. And we can see here it says on last Monday, December 19th, the City Council of Baltimore and the mayor signed what was probably the most remarkable ordinance ever entered into the records of the town or city of this country. And so the title is Baltimore Tries Drastic Plan of Race Segregation. A strange situation which led the Oriole City to adopt the most pronounced Jim Crow measure on record. And what had happened was this black man right here, George McMeckin. Some of y'all in West Baltimore know about McMeckin Street. This is that brother right here. He moved into 1834 McCullough Street and he did what black people do. He said, yes, we can. We finally moving on up. We finally getting a piece of the pie. And so he was moving into an all white block. And the white community said, oh, no, you Negroes can't. And that was the summer of 1910. So uh, Baltimore, even though Baltimore at this time was majority white, and this is what we have to recognize, Baltimore did not become majority black until the mid-1970s. So this is a majority white city, but it had a sizable black population. So the white population, white Baltimores, got together and said, you know what? We have a sizable black population, so we don't want to act too foolishly. We don't want to start no fisticuffs. So what we want to do is pass a law. And so by the end of that year, indeed, uh, that law was passed. And so Baltimore has, oh, unfortunately, this notorious history. Baltimore being number one, setting the stage for racial segregation and you can pull this article, uh, you can download it, look for it online and pull it, and you should give it a read. It is actually a very, very fascinating article. Uh, you can see to the left, this is Councilman Samuel L. West. He introduced the segregation ordinance. This city solicitor, this is not the poet, this is his great nephew, if I'm not mistaken, the great nephew of the poet, Edgar Allan Poe. So uh, his, his descendant, was involved in helping pass the law, not the poet himself. 
and you can see, I talk about this in the book, you know, newspapers like our good old Baltimore Sun was involved in, look at the language that they were using to prevent Negro invasion. Oh my goodness, there's a Negro invasion. Race law in council, new segregation ordinance reported by committee aims to end Negro invasion. 1913, 1919, 1924. And you see these associations, neighborhood associations coming together. These white neighborhood associations, they come together is stigmatized, is demonized. And if we look over here on the left, even the church, oh my Lord, even, look, I got to come off and stop sharing my screen. Even the church, the white churches were involved in making segregation and apartheid a reality in Baltimore City. So even the church, and Dr. Brown, are you gonna name the churches? You know I sure will. I will name the churches. Let's go, because I like to show you the receipts. I want people to have the receipts when we are looking at the material. I want people to know what it is, because this we have primary source material. By the way, before I go back to sharing my thing, I gotta stop and thank the Enoch Pratt Library, because Man, I'm telling you, the Maryland room, the African-American room, so many rich resources. I only touched like 10 or 12 of them. They got thousands. So if you want to be a writer, if you want to be like Dr. Brown and write you a book, I tell you, you should go over to the Enoch Pratt. Man, beautiful, powerful, historical. A lot of the information I pulled on Urban Renewal came from the uh, Enoch Pratt, uh, the, the room, the beautiful library on Cathedral Street. And I just really had a ball and had a great time. So I want to drop that thank you in there before I go back. So let's go back to, let me show you, because we, we got to see who were the churches that were involved. All right, so we go back to the screen. Four churches, all right. The churches are Franklin Street Methodist Episcopal, okay. We got the Methodist Episcopalians up in here. We got St. Pius Catholic. They were involved in lobbying for racial segregation to block the Negro invasion. Memorial United Evangelical. Okay, they was up in the house. Uh, so we, and wait a minute, I somehow missed the fourth one, but you can see it right here. Oh, Concordia Evangelical Lutheran. So we don't want to miss nobody. Four churches. White churches will look in the past, even the hospital, y'all. Look at this. The hospital got involved in supporting, favoring the plan to block home buying while black. So this, and this happened all across America, Chicago, Cleveland, Birmingham, New York, Atlanta, Philadelphia, this was happening all across the land. And again, Baltimore was ground zero for American, urban American apartheid. So this is 1919, Mayor Preston, he's still the mayor. He had a plan to aid 
90,000 Negroes. This is also from the Baltimore Sun. And he was proposing a suburban colony. He wanted to uproot several hundred black families and move them to the suburbs. Now, at this time, the northernmost boundary of Baltimore up until 1918 was Cold Springs Lane. So he wanted to move them out. Uh, basically, the communities like the northern part of Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, the northern parts of those communities, Mount Washington, Lauraville, those were north of Cold Springs Lane. They still are, but north of Cold Springs Lane. So they would have actually been in Baltimore County at the time. So Baltimore County actually plays a, a role in this story. And what unfortunately is true is that my field, public health, was also involved because they were using statistics to basically say that Black people had more disease. And so public health became a rationale for racial segregation. In effect, in effect a quarantine uh, was proposed, especially after the first early ordinances didn't uh, meet the muster in the court of law. So later on, uh, by 1940, you have the beginning of public housing. Uh, 1937 was really the, the inception of public housing. Now, up here, this is Roland Park, Guilford, Mount Washington over here, Lowerville over here, uh, Hamden. We got the, the, the White L communities coming down the center downtown. We got Port Covington down here. And if we go east along Alice Anna, uh, that's where we have the construction or the geographic location of the White L. So look at where public housing was located. Do you all see any public housing in Roland Park, in Guilford and Homeland and Mount Washington and Lord? No, ain't no public housing up in those communities. We see here the legend, the darker the gray, the more Negro, which is what black people called at the time, the more black people lived in a census tract. Look at where the public housing was located. It was public housing, low income housing was placed in and around black neighborhoods. So that whole phrase concentrated poverty Look at how, and this is the federal government getting involved. Federal government's pays for the majority of public housing. They place public housing in black communities. And not only is it segregated that way, the location of public housing is also segregated in terms of which people could live in different public housing communities. So some, the language here, projects, I prefer communities, some public housing communities only white people could live in. Latrobe, Perkins, O'Donnell Heights, Fairfield, Brooklyn, Westport, while others were relegated for black people for Negroes. So double racial segregation. And so this is why public housing, the Housing Authority of Baltimore City, which is working with the federal government to effectuate this, helps solidify and concretize racial segregation in Baltimore City. Also at this time, the another federal agency, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which later becomes the Federal Housing Administration, they create, create these color-coded maps for over 200 cities across America. And you see the four colors here, red, 
blue, yellow, and green. And what's the name of this map? You see right here in the legend, residential security map. Residential security from what? Residential security from who? And so if you read in Tara Patella's book, Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City, he tells you that the pseudoscience of eugenics was used to create this map. Green, white, Anglo-Saxon people lived in these communities because they were considered the most intelligent. Uh, you had blue, where also white people lived in blue communities, but also Jewish people could not live in the green communities. They were also excluded from many communities as well. So they couldn't live. Actually, they were blocked from living in Roland Park, the Jewish community. So they had to live in some of these other communities. Yellow communities, those were the communities oftentimes where European immigrants lived. Uh, folks who were trying to get away from the violence that was taking off and popping off in Europe, World War I, World War II, but really World War I. So you had Italians, you had Polish, you had Russian Jewish folks, you had people trying to get out of Europe, trying to get out of Dodge before everything, all hell broke loose. And so they came to America, but they weren't quite American yet. They were still speaking their European languages. They were still having, they still had un-American, what were well, names that weren't considered American just yet. And sometimes people would change their name to become more American, to Americanize. And so they were often, these recently arrived immigrants from Europe often relegated to yellow communities. And then African-Americans also have a migration story coming from the deep South, trying to escape lynchings, trying to escape the destruction of black communities like the Greenwood community in Tulsa, 1921. The Rosewood community in Florida, destroyed by white supremacist violence, 1923. So Black people were leaving the Deep South in droves. And when they come to cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Cincinnati, they are greeted by urban apartheid. And so this map really signified which communities received access to capital to bank lending for both homes and small businesses. So if you lived in a red community, which is where African-Americans and urban Native Americans were relegated, banks would not, for the most part, lend in these communities. You cannot get the capital to expand your small business. So what would happen? Here's Freddie Gray's community right here. It's before he's born, 80, 67, 70 years before he's born, his community is redlined. So what happens to a neighborhood that doesn't receive capital year after year, decade after decade? That's the question and that's what's really before us. And that's what I really try to tackle in my book. Now, look, there are four colors. So the green and blue communities, they're structurally advantaged. They're getting capital and loans left and right. And is it because they're better than the people living in the red communities? Is it because they work harder? Is it because they um, are more upstanding? No, it's because of the color of their skin. And so I talk about in my book, this phenomenon called segronomics, which is rooted in a 
what is a term that a scholar named Nolire Rooks created. And so this is the essence of segronomics. And this is Baltimore today. It's a hyper-segregated city. As you see, this is a racial dot map, one dot per person. Blue represents white. Green represents African-American. Red represents Asian. Orange represents Hispanic, Latino, Latina. And brown represents other race, Native American. And we do have a small Native American community, the Lumbee Indian tribe uh, in Upper Fells Point. So this is the map that I looked at in 2015 and I saw the pattern, it jumped out as soon as I drew this boundary of Baltimore around the city. I said, whoa, this green pattern, which represents black people looks like a butterfly. And I said, I'm gonna call it the black butterfly. And so what you see here is very clear, the white L, the black butterfly, the Asian archipelago, the Latina lagoon, and then our native American community in the upper Fells Point area. This is a hyper segregated city as shown very clearly in this map. And here we are, I showed you redlining in 1937, the inception. Well, here's data from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition in the last decade. And the bigger the dot, the bigger the loans, the bigger the lending, the more money. So here we are 80 years later, 80 years later. And the gr more green means there's more African-Americans. We still today have redlining going on both for home mortgages and small business lending. Redlining is ongoing. It hadn't stopped yet. And so here we are, black neighborhoods still don't matter. Here's an analysis from Zillow, looking at that same color-coded scheme from 1937. And what they found in their analysis is that the home values for communities in those red, for homes in those red communities, look at how far the home values for those communities lag behind the home values for blue, green, and yellow communities. So not only did you see from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition data right here that redlining is still going on, you see that the this map that I showed you early, earlier the original version still has an impact 80 years later in terms of home values. And we know for many Americans, home values are constitutes the majority of their wealth. So the value of African, the wealth for African Americans is still being determined in Black neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that were redlined 80 years ago still have that redlining still has an impact on the values of homes today. And so it leads to this, it leads to the white L with all kinds of structured advantages and the black butterfly containing all kinds of structured disadvantages. And it's not because the people here are lazy or shiftless or trifling. No, it's because of the raggedy racist systems that we have in Baltimore and in other hyper-segregated cities that confer structured advantages to communities that have higher percentages of white people and confer structured disadvantages to communities that have higher percentages of black people. So I'm gonna end right here. What do we need to do? I call in my book for black or Baltimore neighborhood reparations. Neighborhoods were redlined and subprime. 
those neighborhoods need to be repaired. We must make black neighborhoods matter. We have to stop that raggedy redlining and stop that insidious subpriming. And we got to use laws like the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act. It needs to be stronger. It needs to actually say it's based on race, not just income. But that's a tool we can use. And that's the tool we need to strengthen going forward. Uh, and of course, whenever we do develop, we need to do that without displacement. So there's a lot more I can say. I'm about to, me and Dr. Axis, we're about to have a great conversation. But if you really want to learn more, dig deep. I encourage you to check out my Black Butterfly Academy where you can learn more. So thank you all. And I'll end with this statement right here. We cannot make Black Lives Matter if we don't make Black Neighborhoods Matter. Thank you. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, I am excited uh, to be having this conversation with you. Uh, thank you for your uh, provocative, thought-provoking, solutions-focused uh, presentation. Uh, and I just want to really kind of dive in real quickly. Um, given where we are today with respect to the COVID-19, the pandemic, uh, and also uh, the devastating impact this pandemic has had on Black and Brown uh, people and, and communities in general. And when I get your thoughts, in your book, you talk about uh, historical trauma. Can you say a little bit more about historical trauma and also to what extent has the pandemic exacerbated what we're seeing in communities and how can we mitigate against some of these issues? Well, that's a, a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, the best way to really answer that is fortunately I'm on Zoom and I'm a co-host so I can be like, bam, this is the conceptual model of historical trauma. So this is what I'm talking about in the book. This model right here, developed by a scholar named Michelle Sotero. And so it basically says when any vulnerable group has been uh, inflicted or had damage inflicted on them by a dominant group, then you have these four components of a mass trauma experience, segregation slash forced displacement, physical slash psychological violence, economic destruction, cultural dispossession, and it doesn't just impact the first generation, but it impacts their children and their children's children. So it's an intergenerational model. And I try to really explicate this in my book. I try to show that Black neighborhoods still segregated. Black people in Black neighborhoods are uprooted and people are displaced repeatedly. You have physical, psychological violence, every, everything from slavery to lynchings to police violence today. Um, you have economic destruction. She's got through talking about that. Redlining, subpriming, predatory lending, cultural dispossession, the loss of, of cultural roles, language, religion. All of that is what this model shows. And it shows that there is a physical response in our bodies, a social response in our communities, and a physiological, or excuse me, psychological response in terms of our mental health. And there is this resilience. So it's not just negative. There's also resilience, resistance, revolution even, but there are people push back. That's the human spirit. So I think, you know, this is revealed in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, in fact, when after the inception of the pandemic, so the cruise ships, where the virus, they were a vector. Seattle was an early vector. 
some nursing homes then became the next vector. So after that sort of first wave, the next places that were really hit were these large hyper-segregated cities, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee. So that legacy of historical trauma, when the virus comes into a society, it goes and it says, let me find the most vulnerable people and boom, that's where I'm going to have a party. That's where I'm, I'm going to unleash the viruses, pandemics, epidemics. That's what they do. When they come, when they're introduced into society, they may start at the top because the people that were traveling may be wealthier, but then it finds its way to the bottom where it can spread more rapidly. And historical trauma puts certain groups at the bottom, and those are the communities. We had Navajo, uh, Native American communities hit hard. Um, Navajo County, Apache County out in Arizona, McKinley County in New Mexico, uh, Navajo Nation, uh, White Mound Apache, Zuni Tribe, they were hit very hard in that Southwest portion of the country. Um, Latino, Latina communities, you know, hit hard as well. So the people impacted by historical trauma, the people and places impacted by that historical trauma concept, concept you just saw, those were the ones that were most vulnerable to virus. More of those people are going to be, um, what do they call it? Uh, essential workers. Uh, the, so we, a lot of us, you know, professional people, we at home chilling, you know, on the internet, having a good time working from home and the, the working class got to get up and go out. So your bus drivers, your janitors, these are more often people of color. And then they're the ones that were more exposed to the virus early on. And then we've had more recently household spread. So when you have more people living in a household, when, when housing is a challenge, people got to, families got to double up, you know, triple up. So you got more people in close proximity and there's nothing COVID loves better or more than, a, than human beings in close proximity together. The virus will have a party. So, you know, again, housing issues, labor issues, red line communities, those are the places are, are reservations for Native Americans that don't have resources, don't have lending, don't have capital, people doubling up, tripling up in housing. Uh, I should also mention, of course, of uh, folks who are incarcerated, they're packed in close together. The virus loves high density in population. So it can just hop from one person to another. So our prisoners the, in the incarcerated population, they were hit really hard. Oh my goodness. Some of those prisons, I mean, the rates are just through the roof, through the roof. So vulnerable populations, which is what historical trauma, I think, shows very well. Um, that is the explanatory factor. I, I, I'm starting to use the phrase, history is the ultimate data point. That you can't understand data of the nature that we're talking about, health outcomes, covid you can't understand it if you don't contextualize it properly with history. Well, Dr. Brown, I really appreciate that because as you indicated, uh, what we're seeing is a disproportionate impact, whether it's three times or two times more likely. Uh, we are seeing that for many communities of color, they're more likely to be uh, infected by COVID, more likely to experience hospitalization, more likely to experience uh, mortality and death. 
And what we're also seeing, uh, particularly with uh, the rollout of the vaccination, is a huge disparity, uh, one in which where uh, we're seeing relative to the general population uh, that um, non-Hispanic whites are more likely to be getting vaccinated uh, uh, in many, many states. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to grapple with is, you know, how to really address this disparity. Uh, as you indicated, you have populations that are disproportionately impacted, uh, but now we're also seeing the rollout of the vaccinations, uh, and we're seeing that those populations either don't have access to uh, the vaccine or there's barriers to that, or there may be historical reasons, as you indicated, for mistrust uh, and some hesitancy. Any thoughts on how we could potentially start to address the equity issues that we're seeing? Yeah, and the first thing I want to say is that, you know, of course, like vaccines and things like that are not in my book, but I'm glad you're bringing up this topic because this is an extension of the book. Like, that's what I want readers to do. And I'm glad you're doing is to take the models and the conceptual frameworks and the language and terminology that I'm offering, segronomics, Black neighborhood destruction, ongoing historical trauma. And then you need to apply that to your work. That's what makes uh, at least me as an author, you know, excited is when people can take that and then apply it wherever they may be. And so I think, you know, this is a, you know, an important point since we're all in a pandemic right now. I think, you know, it's very important to realize that uh, for me, the way I apply that to this pandemic is I don't like the language vaccine hesitancy. I think that's another way that we blame folks when the language should be systemic trustworthiness. Like, are these systems trustworthy? Like, then it makes you look up. Not, oh, those people are hesitating, but are these systems worthy of trust? Or are they raggedy and racist? And I think that's the thing that we don't, you know, like, and a lot of people, their hesitancy is really wait and see. I'm going to wait and see how the people down the street do, or I'm going to see how the people that's on the first wave of getting this vaccine, if they are right, and you come back in three months, I might take it. So I don't, I think the, the, sometimes the, 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 when people are saying, well, more black people don't want to take it. Um, and other communities are saying, you know, we don't, and there's even a sizable percentage of white people that don't want to take it for a different reason. But I'm, but the thing is how much are our systems working to gain trust of different communities. And I think that's the thing. And I've been advocating, I've been saying community health workers, you know, the, the approach right now is like, go online, sign up. And, you know, first of all, we know there's a digital divide. Somebody was on here who deals with that might've been with Enoch Pratt, but uh, y'all know there's a digital divide. So everybody don't got good internet. Everybody don't got good Wi-Fi, you know? By the way, we, our thoughts and prayers go out to the people dealing with the snowstorm. Power knocked out 100 million, I believe. So definitely our thoughts and prayers go out to them. Obviously, if their power's out, they're not going to be able to join us today. Um, but, you know, you know, I think it's a situation where with, with vaccines, we have to have an outreach strategy. It can't just be sign up online, come to us, come to this, you know, central location that's not in the communities where it needs to be. And then the other thing is, if you heard in New York, and the, they had vaccines in the Bronx and people, white people will come from Long Island and wealthy whiter communities to go and snatch up 
black and brown people's vaccines. So that's the thing. Are the systems set up to garner trust, to help go out to where people are because everybody ain't got a car. Everybody don't have Wi-Fi. So do we have systems that garner trust and they're set up in in a spatial sense to actually be in the communities where people need to be vaccinated and then have an outreach component to go and reach people who aren't able to come in. I appreciate your response to that, Dr. Brown. You would think that this was actually scripted, but it wasn't. I think your point about trustworthiness is so critically important. Uh, At AARP, we've been doing a couple of things. Uh, One is, particularly around the issues of disparities, is really looking at this from a very life course perspective, meaning the fact that disparities inhibits people's ability to live longer, healthier, more productive lives. And as to your point, it's generational. And the other aspect of this too is not just that it impacts communities of color and other groups, it actually impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. It actually impacts all of us. And how can we work across industries and sectors to really solve these issues? Because they are systems that have been set in place that perpetuates and serves as barriers. So this issue of trust is critically important because it manifests itself in so many different ways. So I just appreciate you uh, saying that. I want to turn to the book uh, because in the book, you say the radical imposition of racial segregation and uprooting cannot be equitably addressed with incremental changes. It is not sufficient to simply to tinker on the edges with piecemeal solutions that sprinkle a few million dollars here and there for a few nice projects and programs. Entire systems must be rethought. Entirely new approaches must be created. A new vision for building and developing cities, cities and neglected spaces must come forth. Can you say a little bit more about what that vision and some of those bold solutions might look like? Well, I think, you know, my book features no shortage of solutions. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I talk about everything I mentioned earlier, Baltimore neighborhood reparations, which is taking 10% of the city budget, which Baltimore's pre-COVID city budget was around $3 billion a year. So 10% of that is $300 million. Allocate that to the top 15 or 20 most redlined communities and have a 15-member democratically elected neighborhood council that's representing a wide range of people in the community, gender, sexual orientation, uh, youth, age. You need all. You need folks from all sectors of the community to sit on this council, work with their community to say, where do we need to spend the dollars that are allocated to us? And you need to do that for 40, 50 years or however long it takes to ensure those neighborhoods really matter. Um, You know, I I talk about a $3 billion racial equity social impact bond because neighborhood reparations are more of a long-term solution. The $3 billion racial equity social impact bond is more of a less kickstart racial Mm -hmm. equity in a real way. Half of that 3 billion is getting toxic lead out of the communities. If you care about crime, I, I I know everybody care about crime. Nobody wants to be a victim of violence. If you care about crime, toxic lead leads to people's inability to regulate their emotions, more aggressivity, more impulsivity, therefore more violence, more crime, more homicides. And we've been struggling with that in Baltimore, but we have tens of thousands of our children that have been poisoned with this toxic lead. And that's one of the impacts is increased elevated incarceration, elevated levels of violence. So 
you know, and before that really is impacting cognitive capacity. So obviously if you're in school, your ability to focus, that's why it's correlated with ADD, ADHD. Um, and so, you know, you said life course perspective. When people talk, a lot of people talk about school to prison pipeline. I say it's a toxic lead exposure to school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that lead exposure can be in utero like it was with Freddie Gray and his twin sister. So poison in the womb. Then you come out poison when you're a toddler, poison as babies. Then you go to school. Your cognitive capacity has been diminished, harder to focus. So now your trajectory in school, academic achievement, being able to go to college, those chances are diminished and another person who's poisoned, our dear sister, Corinne Gaines, who was killed by police in Baltimore County in 2016 in her own home, exercising her Second Amendment rights. That dear sister actually made it to college. So it doesn't mean that if you're poisoned with lead that you can't make it to college. We need to fix that conception. But what I'm saying is that it does diminish and make it more challenging for people because they're fighting this neurotoxin in their blood and in their brain. And so if we're serious about academic achievement, less violence, we got to be serious about getting lead out of the environment, out of the air, out of the water, out of the soil, out of the homes. So that's why I'm saying half of that is getting lead out of the environment. The other half is housing for people experiencing homelessness, about 500 million for that. Uh, The other billion is substance abuse treatment, mental health counseling. It's violence prevention. We got about 10 safe street sites, our violence interruption program in Baltimore. We need about 30 or 40 of them. Expand violence prevention. Boost, uh, you know, transit access. Boost banking access. Do what we can to reduce food apartheid, transit apartheid, banking apartheid. These systems that Print infringe upon people's ability to succeed. So I think those that's what the three billion dollar racial equity social impact bonds. So those are two, I think, of the main pillars. If we can get those two going, I think we'll really be moving in the right direction. But you know, I, I present like a whole lot of other solutions as well. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, I really appreciate this. Uh, one of the things we're doing at AARP uh, is working on really creating livable communities for all ages, all incomes, uh, all forms of disability, because we believe that to the extent to which people are able to live uh, in their communities and they're livable, that not only impacts their health, that impacts their wealth, as you indicated earlier on. Uh, And we actually have a challenge grant. uh, And I think someone actually from our ARP office posted the link. And we want to encourage folks who are on the call, uh, on the webinar to go to the challenge grant uh, and look, uh, uh, submit potential projects that could potentially be funded in order to address some of the liberal communities uh, that is needed uh, to do that. There's been a lot of conversation, Dr. Brown, around racial equity uh, and advancing racial equity. Uh, And I would love to get your thoughts on, uh, you talk about there's five steps for creating a racial equity, uh, advancing racial equity uh, as part of a strategy. Um, What can organizations like AARP or organizations who are uh, on this webinar do to advance racial equity? You know, the first thing, and somebody 
kind of alluded to this and asked the question in the chat about it, like what's the first thing to work on? So in my book, I say the first step to racial equity is really sit down and get educated. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are like, I want the solution. No, sit down, learn, listen. Because if I was a medical patient mm -hmm. and I went and you're, are you a medical doctor? I am not a medical doctor now. Okay, well, let's, we medical patients, if we went to a medical doctor, right? Right. We want somebody who's just come out of school, you know, out of undergraduate. Do we want somebody who's just come out of undergrad, pre-med, working on us, and we got some kind, of, some kind of serious health condition? No, we don't want nobody pre-med. We want somebody with experience, with knowledge, and that's the problem with racial equity. You got a lot of people that want to run out and they pre they pre equity, <laughs> they ain't they ain't studied they ain't learned nothing. The medical doctors learn about anatomy, physiology, the knee bone connected to the leg bone. You got the tendon, you got the neurons. They got to learn how the body works if they want to heal it. And that's what my book is trying to do. It's trying to show you the these the society that we live in. We need to learn how it works, the policies, the practices, the systems, the budgets. You got to get in depth and understand, oh, this is what has been going. These are the laws. These are the policies. These are the practices. These are the budgets. And we've got to talk about budgets because equity, when I define it, I'm saying racial equity is doing, is correcting so if you just talking, like, this is a nice talk. Oh, I want to hear Dr. Brown talk. I, I'm, I'm already, I got a better racial equity lens. No, you don't. Nope. We just talking. This is a talk. Racial equity is what we do. Doing. If you go and do something with what I said, now we talking about racial equity. If you go and change policies, fix raggedy systems, allocate resources towards those who have the most needs. When you do that, that's equity. That's equity. And so everything until then, all the talks and panels and books and everything else, that's not racial. To get an understanding of the way structures have created inequity. The good news in my book is, even though it's a lot of bad news, the good news is you learn that all of the ongoing historical trauma was done intentionally. And believe it or not, that's good news because the good news, the bad news, it would be bad if it was done, if, if it was, if all of this was just random. Like if poor people just decided, where are we going to be poor? I don't know. Let's just go randomly be poor together. Like if it was just random and there was no explanation for it, we would have big problem. We'd have big problem because then it would be like, how do we go and fix it? We don't know how it happened. It's random. But that is not how, that is not how poverty happens. Poverty is intentional. Policies were, I showed you public housing was placed in black communities and then it was racially segregated. That was intentional. Redlining, intentional. Racial zoning, intentional. So if all those things were intentional, then guess what? Undoing it can be intentional as well, but you can't undo it if you don't understand how it happened. So that's what my book is trying to give people the roadmap that I'm saying, this is how it happened. Once you get that, so to that question, you start with education. Don't, don't run out talking about solutions. 
start with education. That's why we need this in K through 12, higher ed. We need people to get educated so that they know and so that there's a will, a political will and people are knowledgeable to know, look, we got this in food systems. We got issues in our recreation systems. We got it in housing. We got it in transit. Everywhere you look, racism is embedded. Policies of oppression are entrenched. So that means we got to go in every system, every agency, and, and root that sucker out. We got to tear the roof off and get to the innards of this thing. So wherever field you're in, you'd look right there. Don't be running over. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people, you know, I appreciate Black Lives Matter. Poli people run out and protest police, right? And that's, I understand that. Yes, we all need to protest police violence. But if you're in medicine, you got work to do. Just work in your medical office in Hopkins, in Maryland, and you know, AARP, wherever you at, philanthropy, wherever you are, that's where you need to do the work. <laughs> wherever you are. Yes, I'm glad y'all come out to the Black Lives Matter police violence, but it's it's structural violence wherever you are. So that's where we need people to confront. We need to confront it everywhere in all of our circles and dismantle these systems that are holding people down. Well, I appreciate that. I'm going to be uh, turning to questions from our audience in just one uh, minute. I, but I did have one last question for you before I do so. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you talk about that, you say that ult ultimately the push for racial equity and social justice is a marathon, not a sprint. And this also echoes a book by the late Congressman John Lewis that's, that where he talked about that it's not going to get solved with one president. It's not going to get solved uh, with one uh, event uh, or in some cases, one generation. Yeah. That this is really an ongoing process. So my question for you, uh, given what we've seen over the last course of the last 10, 11 months uh, and this uh, desire to rush out and address the issues of racial equity. And as you indicated, many people are pre-equity. Uh, do you think this is a moment or do you think this is a movement? It remains to be seen <laughs> because we have to watch what people actually end up doing. Not talking, not all the panels, not inviting Dr. Brown to come and speak, even though I appreciate it. I love to come and speak. But if y'all don't do if we don't see mayors, city councils, neighborhood associations, philanthropies, different agencies and systems, I showed you public health, all, all the sectors and systems of our society, if we don't see the doing, then it will be a moment, you know, and, and, and like you said, you know, this is not a, this is not a marathon. I mean, it's not a sprint. This is a marathon because historical trauma, if historical trauma is intergenerational, which it is, then our solutions and wow. our push for racial equity is also an intergenerational fight. We are 400 or more years, Native Americans, 500 or more years in the mess. We've been in the mess in this country for centuries. We're not gonna get out of this overnight. Right. So we got to, we got to train ourselves and we got to train our children, K through 12, higher ed. 
we got to embed. We, this is a, we got to be in this for the long haul because we got to remake America. We got to make a new nation. We have to make, take the lemons that we've been given and turn this sucker into some tasty lemonade. That's the challenge for us. That's the challenge for us. And I, I think, I hope that we can be up to it. I hope that it does become a real movement. Sometimes, um, and you know, even movements often die off. So we've got to institutionalize equity. We've got to dig deep and even go beyond movements. We have to make it the overwhelming impulse of the way that we move forward, this country forward, mm -hmm. is with racial equity, certainly, but even also social solidarity. That's the other thing. And I don't really get to that in my book. But like you said, we are all in this together. And I think even white people have to see how racism actually ends up undermining them too. You know, look at Baltimore. It's a majority black city, but when our schools are underfunded, that impacts white neighborhood funding for their schools too. Now they end up gaming and scheming so that they can somehow get more money, more resources, but it's still damaging whoever lives, whichever child is trying to go to public schools in Baltimore City. And the same thing with America overall. You know, the more that there's racism, look at the pandemic. When we didn't control the pandemic early in the hyper-segregated areas in the cities, guess where it went next? It went to the rural counties. We are all in this together. So we've got to have both. We've got to be intelligent with this thing. We've got to have racial equity. We've got to have social solidarity if we want to make the country that it, uh, America the country that it really should be. I appreciate that response, uh, Dr. Brown. So I'm going to go ahead and turn to some of the questions that we're receiving from our audience. Uh, the first question uh, says, uh, or ask, uh, doesn't solving housing inequity depend on first solving wealth inequality? Otherwise, don't you just get gentrification? Well, I mean, that's what uh, I discuss in the book. I discuss, you know, if you end redlining, you are addressing the wealth gap. You are, in fact, allowing finally Black communities to have access to capital, which is what the wealth, racist wealth gap prevents. So, and then also subpriming does the same thing. Predatory lending actually extracts wealth. So you got money, you get the loan, but then it's taking more of your money. So the solutions I'm talking about would help address at a fundamental level, neighborhood reparation, that is addressing the wealth gap. And then on the other side of it is when the when capital investment does come, how do we prevent, like you're accurately saying, gentrification? And that's why I talk in the book about, you know, if you give people that come into the community, which we do in, in Baltimore, grants like Live Near Your Work for major employers, if they get grants, to move in, why don't we give grants for people to stay? Stay where you are, voucher. That's that's one of my proposals. You got live your work, come in, voucher. Then give people that already live in the community an even larger stay where you are, voucher. So I'm with you. I'm with you. It's both. It's it's both and, and it's at the same time, and it's being very strategic and saying, all right, we want more capital. We want development. We do want development in redline black communities but we don't want people to be displaced in the process. 
that's the thing. And that's what normally happens. And that's the fear, a justified fear that many black people in these communities have that when that investment comes, and I don't like the word investment, but that's the way it's usually brought in <laughs> as an investment. And when that comes, then that means somebody got to go to Starbucks, the Whole Foods. Uh-oh, here we go. There's already uh, the notion that gentrification is around the corner. So Dr. Brown, I have a question for you uh, from one of our audience members, and they want to know whether or not your book is accessible uh, uh, for K to 12, uh, or is there a youth version of your book that's going to be coming out uh, next year? That's a great question. Um, probably not K through six, I imagine. Uh, and then just depending on, you know, the strength of the reader, uh, you know, seven through 12, um, so I don't, I don't think it is, you know, honestly, I don't think it's accessible for most students in that age range. Cause I don't think I was reading, you know, social science text, <laughs> you know, as brilliant as I was, I don't think I was reading like too many of those. I mean, I was probably reading like other stuff that was way more accessible. Right. So that's a great question. Um, I, we're not talking about a youth version, but you know, that's it. Look, if y'all keep buying the book, anything is possible. <laughs> anything is possible. So, I mean, we actually are going to do an audio book now that that was just early this week, the audio book company reached out. Um, so that actually could make it more accessible. But I think what I try to do is really hopefully work with teachers mm -hmm. and work with them to figure out, okay, how could you take some of this and boom, break it down in your classroom. I'm actually working with Baltimore city public schools uh, with a curriculum uh, work group. And so, you know, some of, some of the history I'm working to get infused uh, there as well. So trust me, I'm, I'm dedicated to trying to figure out ways to get this information in the K through 12 context. Um, even if it's not the book itself, but like you're suggesting, um, if it's not a youth book, you know, we'll, we'll, let's get it into the curriculum. And so teachers can figure out, all right, here's how I'm going to teach it to my class. I uh, appreciate that, Dr. Brown. You, you talked about in your presentation earlier about the role of the church. And we got a question from someone in the audience uh, that wanted to know, what are your thoughts about the church seeking to serve the same communities they try to disenfranchise? Do you believe there needs to be more intentional acknowledgement of the past misdeeds around race? Yes. The example is the, the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland. They actually passed, they, they studied, they did what we said, they studied their legacy of slavery. They, they, I came and talked to them in 2019 about their legacy of racial segregation because some of their churches uh, that, I, that I mentioned, you saw Episcopal in there. So I showed them, hey, look, your churches were lobbying mayors pushing for racial segregation. They took all that information, they deliberated, they voted, and they passed a $1 million seed fund for reparations. And I think that's the model. That is the model is that all the churches that we saw, those denominations should be doing the same thing. And I, I commend them for, if you want to know how to do it, go look at how the Maryland Diocese of the Episcopal Church, the process they went through, the, 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 what they came up with, they are doing, they are putting 
and I told him, look, don't just be putting money towards scholarships and all the safe stuff. And then nothing wrong with scholarships, but, you know, put money towards food security, community gardens, the safe streets, anti-violence, safe, you know, uh, violence prevention work, uh, help for mothers who are who are giving birth, doulas and community health workers. Like think about what makes communities healthy and thriving. So don't just give money to the, really don't just give money to only the individuals, like somebody got to fill out and win a scholarship, but allocate that money to communities, community gardens, community health workers, cooperatives. Those are the types of things that actually help an entire community which is what is needed in our red line neighborhoods. So we have another question here and uh, it's a, around uh, Freddie Gray. Uh, uh, and uh, our audience member says that in some ways we practice doing after Freddie Gray and it feels as if we have not learned some of the lessons and how to be very effective back in 2015. Uh, since you're still uh, in Baltimore, uh, what lessons did you observe about doing that can help Baltimore sustain action this time? What I learned is that everybody was talking about doing better. <laughs> a, a lot of our elected officials, we gonna do better. We promise it's gonna be different this time. But the place where Freddie Gray lived, West Baltimore, it has fewer banks today than it did when he was alive. You had Bank of America at Mondaman, it left. Bank of America up at Ricestown Road, that closed down. So that increases uh, banking apartheid for West Baltimore. Um, toxic lead, nobody's gotten rid of toxic lead. That's still there. So, I mean, you know, the people talked really good. What we did not see was doing mm -hmm. in, a, in a real strong way. Now, and I probably should have a caveat. There was some, you know, legislative justice reinvestment act and some other things, but I'm te in terms of actually getting to the root and, and keep and, and continuing with what's needed. The types of things that I'm talking about in my book, because again, you can't have a solution that's not at the level of the problem. So if you got a $50 billion problem, don't come running out with a, a two, a $200,000 solution. That ain't a solution, you know? So that's the thing. We got to have a reckoning accounting of the cost and the stuff that was done is down here. It's the two, $300,000 that we need billion dollar solutions for billion dollar problems. And that's what we haven't seen. And that's what I've learned and observed. Uh, we haven't had that yet. And so it's my fervent hope that with new mayor, new city council, that there's a new push to make racial equity real, not just talk, but real. So this is a two-part question, Dr. Brown. In your book, you talk about this relationship between hypersegregation and hyperallocation. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is the fact that what you tend to see is that communities that are high, uh, that have a high concentration of people of color typically receive less in public and as well as private resources relative to other communities. So we have two questions here. Uh, one is, you know, why focus on reparations at the, at the local level and not on the national uh, level? Uh, if white folks have a dollar and black folks have 10 cents, how can black folks ever catch up even with the solutions you propose? Right, that's a great question. Keep in mind, I'm dealing with municipalities, so cities. So I'm not saying let's not 
pushed at the federal level. Yes, that just wasn't in my book. My book was looking at hyper-segregated cities. So do we need federal reparations at the federal level? Yes. I'm actually saying we also need it at the municipal level. So I'm not saying either or, I'm saying both and. So federally, yes. Um, but locally, yes, as well. And I think that's the thing that the evidence shows that Baltimore City, hyper-segregated cities, they redlined their own communities. They allowed subpriming, allowed, uh, if you want the empirical evidence, go to Jessica Traunstein's book, Segregation by Design. She lays it out in a, well, it's, it's some high-tech reading now. Uh, I got a PhD and I kind of stumbled through a few pages myself, but if you want the numbers, she got them. You know, it's in the book. So I think that's the thing. You When you look at it, you say, wait a minute, cities have perpetuated these issues as well. And so that's why we need to also go to cities. And there's really no excuse, especially when you're in a chocolate city, a majority black city. Why do we not have racial equity in majority black cities? That don't make sense until you realize the ways by which black political leadership is often undermined either through corruption or campaign donations, which mean that you are more concerned with fulfilling the donor's objectives than you are with fulfilling the mandate for racial equity. So I think that's the thing that we have to really look at. It's like I said, every system, every government, every institution, don't let nobody off the hook. If the harm was inflicted intentionally, then the, the repair also has to be also brought about intentionally as well. I uh, appreciate uh, that. And we have a, another question uh, from someone on the audience that says, you know, what is the first thing to work on? Banks, housing stock, better, better grocery stores? I know, I know it's all connected, but where should we start? And that's why I said, you know, earlier, education. Education is where we start. Um, because education, once you become knowledgeable, like if you read my book, I know a lot of people, they buy in the book because they support me. And they love, we love you, Dr. Brown. And y'all ain't going to crack the book, not one out. And I, I love all y'all. Even I thank you for your support. I love you. But if you want the answer to that question, you got to read it, digest it. And it's not going, you're not going to go through it quickly unless you're just a super reader. But even if you are, like you got to take time and wrestle with it and, and let it, you know, hit you and, and then marinate with it and sit with it and talk about it and figure out like, okay, how does this apply to where I work? And that's where you start. You start where you are. If you're in banking, start with the banks. If you're in recreations, start with recreations. If you're in education, start with education. Start where you are. Be it wherever community institution you're in, that's where you start. It's all needed. It's all needed. There's no sector. <laughs> There's nothing that we don't need to make black neighborhoods matter. Nothing good. So I'm saying that's, that's, don't worry about, you know, well, the one thing I will say is I like the strategy of community gardens. Mm -hmm. I, I think the reason why is because you're getting multiple things for your dollar. You're getting, of course, food security and nutrition. You know, especially if you're in a community that's impacted by food apartheid. So you can impact better nutrition. You can improve food security. 
you can jobs provide employment if you got money to hire young people, hire people to help work the farm and the garden. You can it's green space in an urban area. Green space uh, is very important. Well, everywhere is important, but you know, especially in urban areas, we have a lot of concrete, asphalt. You know, a lot of buildings of that nature. Green space. Green space is really good for mental health. So now you're improving mental health. Other things, you know, plants help you know, and, and trees and things of that nature, you know, help clean the air. So you, you're getting like, you know, I'm, I'm naming like six and I can keep going. Like you're getting like so many things, you know, you can people working together, solidarity, you know, so it can be the catalyst, I think, for more transformative action. Um, so I, I like if I if I were to and I well not if I I've seen you know uh, friends uh, the well, I believe it's friends Tubman House the people across from Gilmore uh, Gilmore Public Housing Community they have a community garden over there where Freddie Gray was killed you, they got a community garden no Filbert Street community garden in South uh, Baltimore you got in Cherry Hill the Black Yield Institute their community gardening effort. There's Northeast Baltimore. They got a community garden that they're working on up there, Oliver Street Farm in East Baltimore. So, you know, you see like those are the efforts, Black Church Food Security Network. I don't want to forget about Reverend Heber, Heber Brown and the tremendous work that he's doing. You know, food is essential, of course, you know, to survival, to sustainability. So, I, I mean, if you if you wanted to pin me down, I would say community gardens, urban farms, those kind of food security efforts, I think are great as catalysts to jump off and, and do other things that really need to be done in the community. Well, Dr. Brown, I can tell you that at AARP, we are fully supportive of community gardens. In fact, our colleagues, my wonderful colleagues with our AARP Maryland office uh, have worked with McHenry Elementary School in Southwest Baltimore where they created an outside space and garden and they continue to continue to keep that upkeep uh, throughout even the pandemic. So uh, that is critically important. And to the earlier question, I, I think uh, the point that you made around education is so critically important because uh, for those who do get the book and I would highly encourage you to purchase the book and even open it and read it uh, because of the fact that I think uh, after each chapter, you really throw out there, Dr. Brown, some very thought provoking questions. And one of the questions I think gets to this issue of education. And you say, if America is to ever move forward as a nation, everyone should question why many Black people feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of that education aspect. Um, we, we, we have a question from uh, our, our audience. And they say, do you believe that Black people would have thrived a little bit better over time if we had stayed segregated rather than, than integrated? I don't know about if we stay segregated, but if white America did not destroy our communities, yes, because that was the history. I, I said earlier, the white Tulsa community destroyed the, a thriving, prosperous black community in Greenwood in Tulsa, 1921, uh, economic business district in Springfield, Illinois, 1908, I believe, which inspired the founding of the NAACP the next year, 1909. Sweet Auburn Avenue, Black businesses there. The Atlanta race riot, 1906. A lot of those businesses were destroyed. Wilmington, North Carolina, 1898. Black and white government, fusion government, 
destroyed by white supremacists in the Wilmington massacre. So would black communities have been better off if they weren't destroyed by white supremacist violence? Yes, yes, yes. Black farmers in Elaine, Arkansas were organizing a co-op because cotton was going through the roof in 1919. They were about to make mad bank. They were about to get money through the roof until white supremacists came and shot up a church where they were meeting to form their farmers cooperative. So if, if racist white people did not come to destroy efforts at black solidarity, black economic advancement, black thriving cities, thriving communities, 1892, Ida B. Wells' career begins in Memphis, Tennessee, when three black grocery store owners, their grocery store was called People's Grocery. That was destroyed by the white community there, lynched those three gentlemen. That undermined the black community. So black communities were thriving and would have been, we would have been, I think if it, even with slavery, if there wasn't the destruction of black communities, black people today would be very close in terms of outcomes and maybe even beyond because that's how amazing people, that first generation out of slavery, they went from enslaved people to landowners. They built colleges, churches, reconstruction. They made a way out of no way. That's the thing that I think people don't realize until it was destroyed in all of those instances, often with, with violence. So I think that's the thing. And I think that's the history that we have to wrestle with. Uh, thank you so much for that, Dr. Brown. We have one last question that I want to throw at you. And then I have one follow-up to that. Uh, the question is, have you seen any neighborhoods in Baltimore begin to address the issues of redlining in a way that could be replicated more widely across the city? No. Just that simple. <laughs> no, it, red line. I showed you the data. Still going on. Still going on, and it has huge implications across the ecosystem. And that's uh, in many ways is bigger than those neighborhoods can handle. Mm -hmm. You got to have enforcement. You got to have regulation. You got to have people analyzing the data in real time. Mm -hmm. Somebody, if somebody is a developer on here, a, a software developer, I'm gonna give you an idea go develop an app that analyzes bank lending in real time and it and have it flag whenever a black home buyer or a black small business owner is trying to get a loan and they can't get it when they have the same criteria that their white counterparts had like say in the in the last 6 months that needs to be developed and it needs to flag it in real time because what good does it do to tell me 10 years after I got my mortgage, hey, you got a subprime loan? Like, I'm out thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. Flag it in real time. That's We got all this big data. Put the data to work to catch it. Flag it in real time and stop the subprime lending. And we, of course, we need the data to catch the loans that aren't giving so we can stop the redlining. So that's you got to have at that level you got to have that kind of scrutiny going on. You got to have an awareness of technologically to catch it and flag it. And then somebody goes in and will actually do something about it. Bank, nope. Uh, you can't, we taking your license. 
somebody going to jail. Like we ain't seen that. So that's why the answer is no, it's still going on. And this last question is from our audience. Uh, and it's something that we've talked about throughout our conversation tonight. And it's the whole notion that uh, in the whole reality, frankly, that we are all weathering uh, the same storms, but we're not in the same boat. Mm. Uh, and uh, this question says, you know, how can we communicate that addressing structural racism would be beneficial for even white people who overwhelmingly appear to enjoy their privilege? Uh, what are the concrete and convincing examples that would strengthen the argument that we're really interdependent and interconnected? I mean, I put forth the notion of social solidarity as a, as a step in that direction to say, hey, we're all in this together. But at the heart of that question, I, I think we are in some ways, that's not our work to convince white people. We need white people to do the work and, and, under, and ask themselves, why are we hating on black excellence? I gave that assignment to somebody else the other day. We need white people to go and do a report. Y'all can turn it in to me, Dr. Brown, and your report needs to say, here are the top 10 reasons why we hate on black excellence. That's a question that white people need to ask themselves because that's, that was the reason the black successful thriving communities were destroyed. And so in fact, somebody, an architect, I believe his name is uh, Brother Melvin. He was telling, he says, not white supremacy is white inferiority complex. Black people are coming up and we're threatened. Same thing happens with men. Women are coming up, men get threatened, right? So the thing is like, how do we get out of a zero sum ideology? That's the work for the dominant group to figure that out. Same thing with men. If we're threatened by women's success, we got work to do. That's our work. We got to do the work. Why are we, why are we threatened when people are gaining, women are gaining, folks are gaining, LGBT community is gaining? Why are we threatened? Them coming up don't mean we going down. We can all go up together. And I think that's the thing who, in a hegemonic dominant group, that's the work that they have to do within themselves to figure out why they are threatened, why they are holding on to zero-sum ideology instead of an ideology that says when they rise, we rise. That is a very powerful question and homework assignment. Uh, with that, uh, we're, I think we're turn about- Turn in, I'll grade it when you finish. I'll turn in. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your, our conversation today, uh, for the insights that you shared for the solutions that you offered up. I mean, this has been such a powerful conversation. I'm now gonna turn it over to Kelly to close us out. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Thank you. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Kelly Shimabukuro, Chief of Programs and Outreach for Enoch Pratt Free Library. I wanna say thank you to Dr. Brown. Thank you, Dr. Axios. And thanks to AARP Maryland and OSI Baltimore Fellows Advisory Board for such a compelling conversation this evening. And of course, thank you all in the audience for joining us tonight. The Pratt would love to hear more about your experience. Please take a moment to answer the program survey after the program. Please click on the link before the Zoom room is closed and the survey will open in a separate browser when you click on it. Thank you so much. Good night. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. 
For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.